This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. to a Benny Intelli News podcast with me, Ben Aris. I'm the Editor-in-Chief. Um, and today I'm joined by uh, Liam Peach, who's the Senior Emerging Markets Economist at Capital Economics, and Thomas Dorvac, who is an economist uh, with Oxford Economics. And we're here to talk about the, um, the coming crisis as is, um, but from the perspective of looking at the, the other side of the coin, not uh, what's going on in Russia per se, but uh, the crisis, the economic crisis, energy crisis, cost of living crisis that this whole war has caused, and to try and get a head round, for me anyway, um, just how bad it's going to get. Because uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion about what's going on in the Russian economy and how it's surviving sanctions, doing better than expected. But the blowback on our side um, is significant, uh, and it's now increasingly causing problems for everybody. Um, as these ten ty- tenfold increases in energy prices, for example, start to kick in. Here in Berlin, we're just waiting for our end of quarter power bill, and it's going to be very unpleasant, I'm told. So, um, guys, maybe we can dive straight in. Um, Adam Tu's uh, US professor, he's actually quite succinctly dubbed this as a polycrisis that it keeps proliferating. I mean, there's been talk in the British press a lot about the cost of living crisis that's related to the inflation, which actually started before um, the war did and was driven by the pandemic. But then now we've got connected to the gas supplies, the problem with um, an energy crisis. Uh, and that's, we just did a piece in BNE is already affecting industry in Europe, both Central Europe and uh, Western Europe with the energy intensive industries either cutting back production or even closing down and i just did a story this morning where SP were predicting that um, car production in europe could fall by as much as 40 percent and beyond all of this i have the very strong impression or until recently that everyone thought this crisis was just going to last this winter and that if we stored enough gas we would get through and then by the spring it would all be over but i'm um, the chief um, the director of research at the imf just brought out a very gloomy blog and in that he said like this crisis is going to be the worst since 1970 and next year it's going to be even worse so i don't know um maybe you could start with liam um if you unmute your mic um do you do you really think this is um are people underestimating how bad this is going to get or is it going to be worse i think it's going to be particularly bad i think it's going to be very bad across all Eurozone countries. I think what we're seeing is you know, household real incomes are being squeezed significantly by very high inflation. You know, the energy crisis is just adding to what are already very strong inflationary pressures across the region. You know, when we when we look at some of the, the income dynamics across Eastern Europe, for example, some of these countries are going to be facing the, the biggest squeeze in their income since, since the inflationary period of the 1990s. And in, in some Eurozone countries, it's gonna be for many years. On top of that, we're seeing already seeing evidence right now that Eurozone industry, C industry, particularly the energy intensive manufacturing sectors are being hit quite hard. I think it's it's it looks increasingly likely that if some of these countries were not already at the start of recession in Q3, they will be heading in, into one in Q4. The headwinds are just are just so strong. Mm-hmm. 
And Thomas, what do you think? I mean, is this going to be as bad as, uh, I mean, what crisis are we going to put this against? 1970, uh, 2008? I mean, yeah. where, where, where do you think this, where, where would you pitch the level? Well, that, that is very tricky to say. Um, Liam's right that the recession's already here. Um, you know, it's not, maybe not being confirmed by GDP data because we only get them at the lag. But it's, you know, a, it, almost every piece of data you look at that comes by the week just confirms activity slowing. Um, in terms of magnitude, you know, it, it's, it's safe to say there's going to be a recession. It's safe to say we're already in a recession. The magnitude is incredibly difficult to gauge because it hinges on so many things. I mean, it basically all goes back to energy and how quickly can the energy prices subside. So what we're forecasting at the moment um, is for the winter recession, peak to trough falls of about 1% of GDP. That is relatively benign, um, although still, you know, more severe than what the IMF just put out. Um, I think Liam and a couple of economics expecting something a bit worse. But the worry is that the range here, if things go bad, if say we have a particularly harsh winter, things could get a lot worse. Because mm. that's the thing that's coming out. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this call, because watching yourselves at Oxford and Capital Economics um, and also IIF, Robin Brook, um, he's been very, very pessimistic. He's saying that this is going to be a deep global recession. The IMF, um, the di director of research, was saying that one in three countries are going to go into recession. Um, and I, I can't, there seems to be some disagreement as to, as to how bad it's going to get. I mean, Germany is looking at maybe a 2% contraction, which is extremely painful, but it's not that bad. Um, the, the, the momentum, I mean, what, what is driving this? And, and are we at the very early stages of recession? So we're talking about some discomfort now, but um, just how far is it going to go? And is it going to hit us this year? Is this going to be the worst part or is it going to be next year? Liam, why don't you take that? Yeah, I, I think I think this this is this is going to be a, quite a significant recession. You know, Thomas is right. We're we're expecting a bit a bit of, a bit of a bigger fall, peak to trough in GDP of around two percent in Germany, one and a half percent in some of the Central European economies. You know, we we've just published our economic outlook for Q4 today, and you know, we're expecting recessions in pretty much all all countries in Eastern Europe and, and most Eurozone countries. This is going to be very broad. It's going to be here for three quarters, perhaps more. You are right. You know, if we do get through this winter, there is a bigger question about what happens next winter. You know, we've, we've had the advantage so far of being able to build up gas stocks ahead of this winter because we've had some Russian supply. What happens next year when we get through, which could be you know, quite a cold winter, gas stocks are very low. We don't have that Russian supply to build gas stocks back up again. So it, it is a risk as we get through this winter that the, the crisis isn't over. I think you know, one thing that makes this recession particularly challenging is that there are other headwinds coming along at the same time. You know, we're expecting the US economy to go into recession. You know, there's going to be a weakening in external demand that's going to feed through to exports because of the, the, the tightening of monetary policy there. Mm. So I think, I think the, the surge in energy prices is going to be the, the single biggest factor that causes, causes pain, but there are other headwinds um, uh, facing some of these countries. And what about you, uh, Thomas? I mean, do you think that we're at the beginning or is this um, going to get worse next year? Um, yeah, if, uh, the, the old age-old cliche is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, <laughs> I think Q4 is going to be the first sort of deep cut. I'd imagine Q1 is going to go even, Q1 next year is going to go even worse. Um, 
again, Liam's right that there's a sort of multifaceted crisis. Um, and it's also, you know, they're coming thick and fast because we're still living through um, sort of the aftermath of, of the COVID crisis. I mean, to what extent yeah. is, is the pandemic actually really over? Um, that, you know, that had big economic ramifications, consumer spending patterns changed so much. Um, then it all came back again as lockdown eased. That's still feeding through the economy. That's respons still responsible for some of the inflationary surge. Um, on top of that, you have the energy prices. And I think, you know, even though there's sort of many factors, I think inflation is still the single biggest drag on the economy because some of the falls you're seeing in real incomes. So, you know, nominal incomes adjusted for inflation in European countries, that's people being on average five, six, seven percent poorer. That's that's a massive drag. Actually, it hasn't been a massive drag so far, um, partly because people also saved a lot of money during the pandemic when you know spending was mm. restricted. But that's you know this is not going to last forever. And I think Q4 this year and Q1 next year is when this you know House of Cards finally comes to finally comes down. Right, right. I mean, let's drill into some of the causes then. I think the one to start with is the, the energy prices, I mean, which have decoupled, as the word you don't get to use that often, gone up tenfold. Um, but that's largely been driven by the gas situation. Um, and uh, ironically, the European storage tanks are now over 90% full and that they're ahead of uh, schedule in terms of a normal year. And that um, there isn't a sort of shortage. Uh, we've had particularly mild weather here in Europe, which has actually brought some of the prices down. And that's one of my questions: is that we've seen gas prices fall um, recently. You know, why we have this this uh, Indian summer, if you like, or Indian autumn. But uh, nevertheless, they remain high uh, elevated. And isn't that mostly just sentiment? And with the the plans the EU has, aren't those prices going to come down relatively soon? Wouldn't that what take one of the factors out of the game? Yeah, I mean, either of you, which if you take a pick. Uh... Well, I'll go here. Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, yeah, the spot prices have gone down. Um, they remain incredibly volatile, and some new development, you know, either geopolitical or actually economic, um, in the next few days could swing them right back again. Um, in terms of the the way Europe prepared itself for the winter, yeah, there is. I mean, um, well, maybe one goes far as saying the scope to be optimistic. But um, you know, when we when we look at when we looked at the storage um, storage capacity being refilled quite well at you know pretty high cost, the the, um, the supplies that the the European countries had to buy, they had to pay a lot for them. Um, but that's sort of one cost to be. Maybe not optimistic, but it is a good thing to see. Also, there's been in some countries, not all, um, I'm going to name and shame Italy here, but in many countries, there's been significant demand reduction for gas mm. already. That's already very, uh, actually more important than anything else, because you can refill the storages this year. You know, next year, come autumn time, you'll be in the exact same position again. The, 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 the diversification of supply away from Russia um, well, into LNG. That will take that, that's, time. That, that's a key question. I mean, now that Nord Stream 2 has been blown up, uh, the, the option, I mean, because we had a very fast fill when the, the filling season began and whenever that was, uh, April. But that was, a lot of that was coming from, from Nord Stream 1, which was working as normal. And now that's out of the game. Is it even possible to refill the tanks next, uh, next summer for the following winter? I can take that one. I think that, I think I think you're right. It's going to be a big challenge, and I think that's why, in particular, we're skeptical that prices are going to fall back particularly far in a very short period of time. We think what's more likely is that 
the European gas market now is going through a very quick restructuring. We're moving away from Russian supply to alternative sources in a very short period of time. It's squeezing European gas markets, and it may take five years, you know, maybe longer, for European gas prices to fall back to levels they were at in 2019. Um, I think what we are seeing with the reductions in gas consumption, it, it doesn't seem to be, at least as far as I can tell, you know, particularly you know, broad um, energy savings. It seems to be actual demand destruction that's being brought on by the industrial sector. Because Perugal just brought out a report, they've got this um, gas tracker, they, they drill into the data, and they said that there's been an average reduction of 7% in gas consumption, which is not the 15%, but then we're not at the end of the winter either. So I took that to mean that there's actually been a, a good, solid response, and that Germany has 11% reduction. The Germans have been running public uh, information campaigns, telling people to be careful, and Germans being Germans are doing what they're told and actually have turned down the thermostat and uh, turning the lights off. But um, is it even possible to replace the Russian gas? Because I mean, through Nord Stream uh, 1 was 55 billion cubic uh, meters a, a year. And I understood that the LNG supplies, such as they are at the moment, um, cannot replace that much gas. And the alternatives bringing you from Azerbaijan and what have you, you know, we're going to add two, three BCMs, maybe as much as 10 altogether, some Algeria. But um, this is a huge hole, this 55 to fill. And that means that next year, well, I don't know, the Germans are also building a couple of LNG terminals, which could possibly come online, big ones too, um, as soon as next year. But, you know, isn't this just going to, to be a problem for several years? Because the other alternative is to invest into renewables to replace that uh, that energy, but that also will take several years, won't it? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I think it's it's fair to say that come autumn time next year, uh, we won't be you know back to 100% when it comes to energy supply or the sort of you know back to replace you know fully back to replacing um, what we don't have from Russia. Um, two points to sort of make here is one: there's going to be incredible incentives to do the replacement either via LNG from wherever US, um, wherever we can get it. The other one is um, Russia will also have to sell its gas somewhere else. Mm. Um, now, obviously, you know, this is not a matter for one year because it takes a while to build a new pipeline and will take a while to, to find a new market. But I suppose China is the, the one they'll be looking at, but they will need to sell their gas somewhere else, probably at a discount. Um, wherever, is, wherever is China buying their gas from right now might be more keen to buy it might be more too keen to, to sell to Europe at a much higher price because you're again will be sort of desperate to buy um in terms of renewables again absolutely true um it, this should be uh, a major incentive I expect the EU will grasp this as a major incentive to bolster investment into renewables but yeah I mean it's, it's fair to say that next year or next winter this will still be an, be issue. an issue yeah the the switch to LNG I mean uh, before with the Russian pipe gas, um, which has been coming since the 70s. And the beauty of that was it was reliable um, because it's on a pipeline, you can't change customers. And so you do these long-term deals. So the price is fixed and you can plan for that. And LNG was there as a sort of you know option, uh, last resort if the winter was particularly cold and you needed to top up the gas tanks, you could go to LNG, which is much more expensive. And the role of LNG now has been completely changed uh, in so much as it's the main supplier, I mean, or 
one of the main suppliers. I mean, it's been upgraded as a key strategic source of uh, gas. But isn't the problem with LNG is that it's a lot more expensive than pipe gas. I mean, the gas prices used to be 200 bucks per thousand cubic, and we've been looking at 2,000 bucks for, per, per thousand cubic from the LNG. And isn't that going to permanently lift prices for energy in Europe if we're now using LNG as a, as a main source of gas? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. LNG is a lot more expensive than pipeline gas, and on top of that, you know the the supply of the supply of LNG isn't as reliable as pipeline gas. Um, I think I think this, this this feeds into into this view that this is going to be an energy crisis that Europe has to battle with for quite some time. This this winter could be the most painful because this is where the the, the short term short term impact of the um, Loss of Russian supplies having the biggest impact, but even even in, into next winter, energy prices are going to stay very high. You know, we think natural gas prices are going to rise again ahead of next winter. They, um, they they typically rise seasonally anyway, and I think I think Thomas is right that there is going to be a greater push at the EU level to invest in renewables and alternative energy sources. This might be one of the one of the long term implications of this crisis, which is you know, much more investment in um, greener energy, um, more energy efficient um, types of energy sources that can come out of this. But this is this is a five, 10 year um, problem. It's not going to happen within the next winter or two. I mean, it's, it's, it's fair to say that we saw the, you know, the Russian gas and natural gas in general as a sort of transitional source of energy. And then we just got stuck in the transition because mm -hmm. it just was very, very easy. Um, and that's now over. Yes. I talked to the guys at Gazprom Neft, and uh, they um, they were they were very keen to keep their reliable energy partner status, which they've had since Soviet times. Um, but it seems that the government has made a different uh, decision. But can we sustain this? I mean, if we're talking about um, high energy prices going forward for several years, not just this winter. Then um, there's talk here in Germany that the economic model has been fundamentally wrecked because it's, you know, it's a German industry has been powered um, with cheap Russian gas, uh, reliable gas, and they use it as an input as well. I mean, it's not actually that important or it's not super important to, to electricity generation. But if they've changed it in such a way, I mean, that if you take the German economy out of the equation or you make it significantly less profitable, isn't that going to have a knock-on effect for the whole of Europe? I mean, for Poland, for Austria, those economies are closely tied to what happens in Germany. And Germany is very um, exposed to this Russian gas problem. Yes, this is very true. I mean, you know, the, the whole European automotive supply chain goes through Eastern Europe mostly and, and ends in Germany. And if Germany suffers, then this is going to fall back um, on, on the other countries as well. Um, this is a very difficult question to answer. I mean, competitiveness, if, if energy prices indeed remain high, then European industry's competitiveness will come into question. Um, but also, as you mentioned, like not every industrial sector uses gas as an input. Not every industrial sector uses um, gas as, as a source of electricity, source for electricity generation. Um, it is definitely a risk. It's just at, at this point, it's, it's so difficult to tell. But Yes, I mean, if, if Germany is in trouble, then it's not just Germany that's economically in trouble, um, because a lot of other countries have tied their sort of economic fortunes and their economic growth model to, to that of Germany being the sort of the final, uh, final piece of the puzzle. 
Because, I mean, what we're talking about here and, and what's so mind-boggling about this situation is we're taking the whole of Europe energy infrastructure, where the Russians have pointed their, their energy, oil, gas, to the West since 1970s. And they're going to transplant that and change it all and point it to the East, which is going to take at least five years to happen. But doesn't that fundamentally change the nature of the European economy? If you so you just you know you're you're ripping out the 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 infrastructure the pipelines the you know the power cables uh, and having to find something else to replace them um, with something that's less efficient or more expensive and more fickle too because LNG is a commodity like oil that could change markets or go to Asia if the prices are higher whereas the pipelines uh, those were locked in for thirty years and doesn't that to to what extent is Europe's economic is prosperity fundamentally threatened by this on a, on a permanent basis not just talking about you know until the war ends and we go back to normal because there is no going back to normal from this is there yeah i i, I think i think this is a big concern not just for germany's economy but a lot of economies in europe that you know, there could be a long-term impact on supply potential and production capacity you know it could be some metals mining, metals manufacturing companies that you know have to close, they go bankrupt this winter and you know, they never reopen. There could be a permanent hit in those in those most energy intensive sectors. How important is that? I mean, we've already seen in particularly in Central Europe, you know, all the fertilizer plants, they're basically shutting down because A, they can't afford the energy and B, they can't afford the gas. So they're getting double whams. But is that is that a major economic dislocation for those economies? Or is it just like that little bit of a the corner of the economy is gone and it's not coming back, but we'll be fine? I think I think potentially it could be quite significant. We, we don't know. I think one of the lessons from the pandemic is that those semiconductor shortages that hit the auto sector are so hard to predict in advance. And it's similar mm -hmm. with this energy crisis. We we know which sectors are the most vulnerable. We know in which sectors energy costs were a high share of total costs. But there are all these supply chain exposures that we we don't know how they're going to work out. You know, there's, there's glass manufacturing that feeds into motor vehicles. There's rubber that feeds into motor vehicles. There's CO2 that feeds into um, food and beer production, mm -hmm. drinks production. There is there are so many unknowns. I think it's a it's a huge concern that we may see the, these these knock on impacts on industry as we get through the winter. Mm -hmm. Let's talk briefly about the responses. <clears throat> so far, um, my view on this is that Russia's been putting itself on uh, its economy onto a war footing. Um, Minfin just introduced ten percent across the board tax increases. It's hiked the social payments. Um, and you know they're buckling down for a long fight, uh, and Russia's fiscal fortress that Putin's so busily been building for the last decade has proven to be actually quite resilient, in so much as the Russian economy has done better than expected. Whereas on our side, what I see is that we're just throwing money at the problem at the moment, in so much as when we first started reporting about the aid, it was up to a quarter of a trillion, two hundred fifty billion, uh, and then there was another round with um, another couple of hundred and then Germany just came out with um, 200 billion dollar in relief and aid and so I, I, I topped the total up to now well over half a trillion and I'm I think the the EU recently said um, in Brussels that they're looking now at two to four trillion by next year and the the idea here is is to protect the consumers um, from you know that nobody can pay tenfold increase in their heating bill it's just, it's just not possible so the the governments have to take it on the chin and they are going to pass significant amounts across 
But then this means we're just going to bleed money uh, and not just for this winter, we're going to bleed money capping these prices for a couple of years. Is that A, the correct response? And B, can we sustain that kind of spending? Yeah, so on the first one, this is a very, very pertinent point. It's a very good point. So one thing, you know, these headline figures, they're often, you know, say Germany, 200 billion, often not, a lot of that is not actual spending or spending that's been announced previously. But you're absolutely right in that the fiscal help that the governments are hastily putting through, I'd say we're finally moving in the right direction, both on the EU level, but the national responses are going to be more, uh, more important. It needs to be sort of, very finely balanced because you want to shield the most vulnerable. You want to protect the households from the you know massive increases in in energy prices, but you also want to reduce the demand because, as mm. you said, if you only cap prices, that does nothing in 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 the long term. So you also want to maintain or preserve the incentives because energy costs are high to consume less energy. So. Um, it seems that the ideal mix is some sort of an intervention in the wholesale energy market because those are the ones who have been sort of benefiting from the situation, perhaps less than many people imagine due to various intricacies of the wholesale market, selling ahead and then hedging and that sort of thing. Um, and then some there ha will have to be some transfers, um, direct transfers to not just low-income households. I mean, people sort of underestimate that even what tends to be described as sort of middle-income households, they could, they were with with energy prices not being mitigated in any way, they still struggle. Um, mm. But I'm I'm taking some comfort in, in in that European governments, again both nationally and on the EU level, are heading in the right direction. In in the traditional EU fashion, it took a while, but it seems to be on at least on track now. But still, yeah. the more you know details are still sort of scant. Can we, I mean, the EU as a whole has a significant borrowing power and moreover during the pandemic for the first time, uh, they experimented with a, a pan-EU bond. So there is an option, because at the moment all the spending has been done at a national level and the Germans got, um, they got criticized because they, they basically offered too much. And the other countries were saying, look, this is a subsidy to German business because effectively they can have cheaper power than us and therefore they're going to become more uh, competitive. Ironically, that was an argument that used to be used by the states against Russia. Um, so I'm kind of amused to see that one come up. But as I say, it's at a national level. Um, but can we afford, a simple question, I mean, can we afford to spend two to four trillion dollars a year on subsidizing energy in our markets for a couple of years? Do we have that much borrowing power, uh, what's it going to do to, to, to national budgets? Isn't this going to cause a debt crisis in the end? It's, it's, a, it's, a, good, it's a good thing to be concerned about. Good question. Sorry. I think the, the sums we're talking about at the moment, you know, on average around you know, three to five percent of GDP this winter, it's a significant amount of fiscal support, you know, mm. insofar as that you know, stops economies from going into a deeper recession, uh, stops a bigger fall in, in tax revenues, then it will have some impact on the budget, um, some offsetting impact on the budget. I think the, 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 the long-term fiscal impact of this crisis, of course, I think depends on how long this energy crisis goes on for, but also one point to bear in mind is that you know, high inflation can help, or can allow countries to run a larger budget deficit and keep their debt ratio stable in the long run. You know, it depends how high inflation is and how that boosts nominal GDP relative to interest burden. But, you know, potentially over a longer period of time, 
if we don't if if the energy crisis is not as bad in the future as it is this year then i think potentially we, we could see those budget deficits remaining quite quite large over a period of time yeah um i want to get on to inflation in a minute there was one more question i had about the um the relief support packages coming in um i forget who it was i think it might have been Bruegel, but they pointed out the trouble with capping the um the prices and not passing that pain to consumers is there's no incentive to reduce your gas consumption and so actually you're spending a huge amount of money to make the crisis worse or at least to uh, to 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 extend it because you need people to actively uh, reduce their their consumption and the example that was given in was italy in so much as i think italy's made no reject, reductions at all, at all to its gas consumption uh, or maybe slightly two percent and if you look at spain and portugal they've actually increased their gas consumption but then they're not affected because they've been importing energy uh, on long-term catch contracts so they, they're not having the same crisis as everyone else but isn't that misguided i mean don't you need to inflict some pain on the consumer and industry in order to force them to reduce their consumption Yes, that's a short answer. Yes, you do. Um, and that's why, I mean, that's why the design of the fiscal support package is really important. For example, Germany, you know, did try to tap um, what I would call sort of an A-team of economists to design the package. But I mean, yeah, the idea is to preserve incentives um, to reduce energy usage while still shielding, because there's, you know, you, you can't pass through all of the pain to consumers. That's too much. Um, so sort of, you need to sort of calibrate it so you have just enough reduction of demand so you, it doesn't come to sort of what we call hard rationing you know just basically um a blackout in supply of energy but at the same time um yeah it, it, there needs to be sort of a balance uh, are blackouts are blackouts off the cards because um the the ministry of energy in the uk uh just warned people that they could be blackouts uh, and the prices in, in the UK for power are particularly high um, but I was under the impression that with the 90% full tanks now that we're probably going to avoid that unless there's a very cold winter. Well as far as I know UK has essentially no gas storage capacity Yes, because it got rid of it. Um, yes. So I, I, I'm I'm not an energy expert so I couldn't, I couldn't tell you with the blackouts are likely or completely off the cart. Um, but also, yes, I mean, gas is, you know, the sort of um, center point of this crisis, but there's been also other issues in, in, in other electricity generating um, bits of the market. Um, and this is something also where uh, we sort of expect an improvement. Uh, one is hydropower, which has struggled a lot over the summer with basically drought. Um, that should hopefully, if weather returns to normal, that should not be a problem over winter. The mm. other one is the French nuclear fleet, which also struggled. Um, as far as I understand, due to cooling problems, again, low uh, levels of water in rivers. Again, that hopefully um, will gradually ease as it is already easing. So that's sort of, I, I suppose this is the, the best optimistic take I can offer, but there's, you know, some bits are also improving. This has been almost a perfect storm because, I mean, on the one hand, we've had the problem with the Russians and that's all being driven by politics, geopolitics. But then we just happened to have a blazing hot summer, which reduced the, the reservoirs, particularly in uh, Scandinavia. And at the same time, the French just happened to have a nuclear power maintenance problem that took whatever it was, nearly 40 percent of their capacity out of action. So this all came 
together at once. But I guess we, we should be on an optimistic note so that everyone's sort of rallied around and cope relatively well. Um, I think and... we also now deserve a very warm winter in, in return. <laughs> well, is there any view on that? Because I, I saw the FT published a piece saying that, you know, they had some meteorologists who said that actually this is going to be a very cold winter. But we, I don't know, we, we can't know, can we? No one has a sort of a view, a comprehensive or authoritative view on that. So moving on to inflation, um, this is the other problem that's going on and actually was there beforehand, uh, before this, this whole uh, Ukraine story broke out. And it, I, I saw some figures from Eurostat that, you know, the 70% of inflation at the moment is being driven by a combination of food prices and energy prices. And that's despite the fact that those two things only make up about 30% of the basket. And then... Um, Liam, uh, Capital Economics just brought out this enormous report, which I'm wading through about the fracturing of the global economy. But within that, there's um, a, the point that we've had like a decade of very low inflation, and that's been driven by huge productivity gains. And at the same time, the opening up of or the end of the, uh, the socialist experiment. And um, that led to globalization, which dropped costs and kept inflation down. Plus you've got um, migrants, migration of cheap labor. But what's going on at the moment is now the system's breaking up. And thanks to COVID, the supply chains are getting shorter. That globalization is sort of coming to an end or petering out. That not only is that driven inflation higher, but that it's also going to be a lot more sticky. It's gonna be a lot more difficult to get rid of. And the final point, with inflation is that the inflation has been driven not by normal things like changes in demand and money supply. It's been driven by things like disrupted supply chains and central banks have no control over that. Hiking the rates doesn't make any difference to your supply chain. So aren't we stuck with this very nasty problem that's just gonna make everything worse and there's another one that's not gonna go away for several years. Liam, maybe you can take that one. Yeah, I, I, th I think the short term inflation outlook across Europe is particularly bad. You know, we we're significant upward pressure on inflation, like you say, from food prices, energy prices. What we're seeing in some parts of Central and Eastern Europe is some of those second round inflation effects are looking a bit stronger now. You know, particularly mm. when you combine combine this with the the strength of demand in some of these countries, the very tight labour markets. You know. Food inflation in Hungary, for example, is way, way stronger than it should be based on the indicators of food prices that we've looked at. And I think a lot of that can be pinned down on some of these second round effects. And at the same time, all of these European economies are dealing with currency depreciation because of the strength of the dollar and how that's feeding through into import prices. You know, it, it, the way we're looking at the inflation outlook over the next year or two is that you know, some of those supply chain disruptions that have pushed inflation up at the start of 2021 and early this year should fade, particularly if we have weaker demand in advanced economies, but they may be taken over by some of these other forces. And we think it will probably take quite a, a deep recession to cause you know, a marked weakening of labor markets to bring down wage growth and then bring down some, some of the, the core inflation metrics across Europe. Just Isn't that... Isn't that the plan, though? I mean, given that the hiking rates uh, actually has no effect on inflation, you know, in the traditional sense, the, but you do, you slow the economy and that will bring inflation down by causing demand destruction. But that's like, you know, hitting the problem on the head with a hammer. Um, and you're just doing as much damage with the hammer as you are doing as, as a cure. I mean, isn't that a sort of, you know, the wrong way around? 
but it's also the challenge when inflation gets to such extreme levels. You know, it takes a significant monetary policy response to then weaken demand and bring inflation back down. And the, the difficulty now is that when inflation gets to these to these types of levels, you know, supply shocks, price shocks like we're seeing with energy at the moment can sustain inflation above central bank targets for quite a while. Mm. I think inflation will come back down to central bank's targets. You know, it's going to come with a cost and it might take a few years. I mean, you're following Central Europe quite closely, and we've been writing about the, there was a huge like row in the um, in the Polish Central Bank uh, where they're threatening to take each other's court over the differences. And uh, but the politics is coming into that now as well. And so much as the three members that are linked to the opposition are blaming the government uh, and saying they just like you know it's not a problem. You you just got this wrong, and then the the economists are saying no, no, no. It's uh, supply chains and all the things we've just mentioned. But um, is there any sign of, you know, Poland, I think, is it a 25-year highs? Is there any sign of it, like, peaking out? And then these big rate hikes that they've been pushing through have actually starting to have an effect? It's a good question. I think you know, I've been quite critical of the Polish Central Bank this year because they were, they were quite slow to acknowledge the extent of the inflation problem. It's almost as if, for most of last year and early this year, they had their head in the sand. And I can see why they've had a lot of criticism from some ex-MPC members and colleagues. The impact of monetary tightening is feeding through quite slowly. It's not as strong right now. I think it will get a little bit stronger. Um, when I look at the breakdown of core inflation, it had looked like some of these domestically driven price pressures were starting to fade over the summer. But then in September, inflation shot up again. And then you sort of scrunched up that piece of paper and chucked it in the bin and we went over again. Yeah. It looks incredibly likely that inflation is going to continue rising um, because of the energy prices, because of these core inflation. Um, but it's already pressures. insane levels. I mean, they, they've got inflation over twenty percent, and uh, what's what's the overnight rate now? Something on the order of six or seven. Six six point seven five percent in Poland, with an inflation rate that is going to reach twenty percent in the new year. You know, it's a mm. significant you know inflationary imbalance. Um, one place where we can see inflation start to slow is in the Czech Republic. And I think it's benefiting a little, a little bit more from um, the fact that its currency hasn't fallen as much as the other, the other countries in the region. Yeah, and that's also, that's, that was one of the central banks that went all in very early. It was, you know, at some point leading, or sort of maybe with Latin America as well, um, very sort of front-loaded hiking rate, which maybe now is paying off. Um, because if you, if you look at the... As Liam was saying, if you look at the breakdown of inflation in Czech Republic, um, right now, all the increases are pretty much driven by food and energy prices. So as you mentioned, something that's very much at the mercy of global markets, very much outside of control of central bankers. But core inflation, that's sort of the measure of, of the domestic um, pressures in the economy when it comes to prices, is now actually falling. So yeah, there, there are economies that, you know, who reacted, responded early, they were in seeing tentative signs of maybe inflation peaking or core inflation peaking but as Liam mentioned it's very true it's it's almost like um whack-a-mole game in, in the sense that when you just when you think the inflation is already peaking and you mm. publish a report saying yes inflation is peaking suddenly there's a, another five percent monthly increase out of nowhere so it's it's, it's been very very persistent isn't it true, you guys, as economists, this has been like one of the most exciting or at least unpredictable periods of, of European economic history that has been for decades, isn't it? I mean, because several times you were saying is we don't know, it's uh, we can't say it's going too fast and it's too extreme. 
Yeah, I mean, the personal anecdote is I, I joined Oxford Economics in 2019, uh, September 2019, where we spent our months debating whether the German industrial production forecast should be 0.1% higher or lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then came February 2020 um, and the pandemic, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster since. Yeah, it, it's true. It's a lot of these things, because often, you know, as economists, we look at correlations in past data, we estimate our models, however sophisticated they are, on past data. Um, these things no don't necessarily feature in past data, so mm. it is is incredibly tricky. And it's also, I think, um, you know, led to some very interesting developments in 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 sort of in terms of what data we look at. Um, very high frequency, very granular. Um, mm. So we're trying our best, but yeah, it has been very <laughs> tricky. Well, talking about that, I mean, the 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 point with the like Liam was pointing out, the, there's a huge gap between the prime overnight rates uh, from the central bank and the rate of inflation, over 10%, 12-13%, which means you're running, in effect, a huge negative real interest rate. And given that a large part of that inflation is outside of the central bank's control, um, supply chains, energy prices, does that mean that this that that's justified to have these huge negative interest rates because what you're doing is you're setting the rate for the bit of the the whole system that you control the, the demand and money monetary supply so that's okay to have that massive gap or you know in my layman's terms you just should be hiking the the overnight rate to the point where it matches or is greater than inflation that's normally the case isn't it Liam. yeah i, I... I think if I think interest rates in Central Europe probably should be a little bit higher than they are. I think we I've I've certainly been surprised that central banks have brought their tightening cycles are very close to bringing their tightening cycles to an end at a time when inflation is still rising quite sharply and on a, on a monthly basis doesn't seem to be turning at the moment. I think I think probably would be unreasonable expect some of these central banks to raise their interest rates in line with inflation a 20 percent interest rate in poland would would cause so much so much harm it would um it'd be quite quite devastating but i think it, at least with these these currencies coming under so much pressure and the inflationary impulse from that um i think there's a case that you know, central banks are going to are going to find it difficult to maintain interest rates at their current levels over the coming mm. months, particularly heading into winter. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Hungary or Romania, for example, if they're forced to raise interest rates a little bit more just because some of these inflationary pressures turn out to be a bit stronger than they, they thought they Is would be. Is that a political thing? Because um, if you raise the rates too much, I mean, the IMF were making this point in the blog and there was, you know, you have to, you don't want to raise them too high because then you'll cause a recession. But if you don't raise them high enough, then you get runaway inflation and it becomes more expensive and painful to get that under control later. And actually they were suggesting this path between those two courses is actually very narrow and it's very difficult to, to guess where it is. And, uh, but there's a political motivation here too, because you don't want to raise them um, because that brings the government under pressure. And you can point to the US uh, where they've been hiking rates quite fast and suddenly the market, the housing market has collapsed. Nobody's taking out mortgages anymore because it's starting to get really expensive. And the knock-on, if you have floating rate mortgage and you hike the rates really sharply like Russia did or Ukraine 20, 25%, then that causes chaos as well. Uh, And then you get social problems, you get social unrest and protests. So I mean, to what extent is that you know, the, how close do you think they are to that golden mean between these two extremes? And is it a political problem? I mean, is that what's holding them back? 
Yeah, it's, it's 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 very difficult times to be a central banker in mm. in Central Europe and in, in the ECB, Bank of England, the Fed as well. Um, I think for the advanced economy, central banks has definitely been that um, sort of desire to um, make up for the slow start with really large hikes. You know, seventy-five basis point hikes we've never almost never seen before, very rarely. Um, it's tricky because, you know, in ideal world, from the sort of optimal control perspective, you would be rising, raising the rates gradually until you reach what's sort of known as the terminal or the neutral rate um, at which the bank would stop and eventually things would sort of fall into place. Um, what's happening right now is pretty much every single central bank will go way over the estimate they have of the, of the neutral rate or the terminal rate um, they should be keeping in this in the long term, and then they'll have to cut back to it. Whether it's political, I don't know this, I mean, you know, for most central banks, their the target or the, the mandate is very simple, keep inflation stable around two or 3%, whatever it is. But the things you need to take into consideration for that enormous, it's not just current inflation, it's inflation expectations. It's the projection that your staff is making for output. Um, a lot of these central banks are now forecasting recessions in their economies. I think some of them are hoping that that's going to do, you know, mm. say, say in Eurozone, I, w I don't think you can really, if, if there's a the recession, which we all think it is already happening, you can't really pin the blame for that on the ECB, but I'm sure the ECB is hoping that that's going to do some of the heavy lifting in terms of right. reducing inflation for them. Right. Yeah. To um, what was I going to ask? Um, to what extent um, stagflation? I mean, this was brought up relatively early on this year. Um, to what extent are we headed for that, though? I mean, we have high inflation and we have recession. Uh, but that can be a very nasty problem. Uh, you know, I was I was a kid um, when we had it in the UK in the, in the 70s, but I remember it. You know, it was probably the first economic term I ever sort of was conscious of was stagflation because it was talked about and everyone was complaining, saying how painful it was. Is that realistic? Um, is that is that something that's on the cards? I mean, aren't we already there to some extent? I think stagflation, it was talked about a lot in, in advanced economies last year, just as just as we got the taste for it. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't seem to be talked about as much at the moment, although it does seem to be mm. a lot more appropriate right now. I think I think in Central and Eastern Europe, it, it, I don't think it applies to the same extent as maybe in advanced economies. I think Central European economies are faster growing. They can sustain a higher rate of growth over a longer period of time and advanced economies and i think the inflation shock we're seeing will end up being temporary so i think this could be could be stagflation like conditions for a few years but i think with the way central banks have responded i think the way that global currency markets should adjust into next year in 2024 i think i think we should be returning by the middle of mm -hmm. this this decade towards more normal conditions but it's, it's it is going to be a painful two or three years so I know not that much about it, but I was reading um, that the central banks are much better equipped than they were in the 70s and that um, they have more financial power power um, that they can they, they can deal with this uh, problem of stagflation uh, Whereas before they, they didn't know what to do. Uh, and now it's like being done before and you've got to bite the bullet in hike rates. And as you say, everybody has hike rates quite aggressively. But funny enough, the very first central bank to, to you know, end its easing policy um, was uh, the MBU in Ukraine, they, they made the first hikes, followed shortly by the Russians. But then in Russia, the inflation is falling. But 
I don't know if we can actually read anything into Russian macroeconomic numbers if they mean anything now, but you know, it's been steadily falling since April. It's the only country in Europe, I think, that has falling inflation and has been cutting rates already. Do you think that's, you know, we can read anything into that? Or is that just like, it's all a bit, well, because the economy is so hermetically sealed off from everything now that it doesn't really mean anything what the central bank does now. Yeah, again, not an expert in Russian economy, but I'd lean towards that explanation. The economy Russia's running now is very, very different um, mm -hmm. in all ways, shapes and forms um, because of the sanctions, because of the lack of access to global financial markets, because effectively turning onto it's not, you know, it's not a planned economy as such, but um, the war efforts turning into something like that. Um, so mm -hmm. the sort of standard, you know, price being an economic signal. Um, point of view i don't think it applies that much in mm. russia at the moment so the last question i have is um to what extent it seems to me that it's the the countries on the eastern side of europe are the ones that are most exposed to all of this and they're the ones that are also the most uh, dependent on the russian energy and if you go further west um then the problems seem to be less i mean to so we look at the EU as a whole. However, uh, which countries in in the in the EU and Central Europe uh, are the most in danger or the most exposed? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Germany. We've mentioned Italy. They seem to be in the front line because of their energy dependence. But looking at the other economies, I mean, some of them like Slo Slovenia is doing relatively well. I think. I mean, isn't there a big difference between uh, the members of the EU as to the problems they're facing here? I, I think without a doubt, the Central European economies, you know, the likes of Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, are by far the most exposed to the energy crisis we had into winter, not just through the price, the price impact, but also through the threat of rationing. I think the, the Czech Prime Minister summarised this in a, in a recent speech a few months ago, where he said you know, the Czech Republic is a, is a landlocked country with no offshore wind, um, no... Uh, no um, good sense of energy security it has to import it has it has that vulnerability that makes it particularly exposed to what happens with with russian gas i think if we were to be talking about a, a gas shortage slash energy rationing scenario as we head into the winter it, very easily we could be seeing double digit falls in industrial production in some of those central european economies um, big falls in, in gdp that just just compound the long-term impacts of this crisis. Hungary's a bit of a tricky one in this because of the relationship that the Hungary's government has with Russia and the way it secured um, special gas supply deals. But I think particularly Czech Republic and Slovakia, we should be most concerned about. Mm. Yep, yeah, I can only agree with that. And is this going to not um, lead to some sort of uh, debt crisis or financial crisis? Because again, the read across from the seventies is that what the stagflation that was with with when the rates were hiked and the damage that did, that destabilized the markets, and then we had a series of like uh, financial crises. So the whole thing became a lot more top heavy. And um, is the same? Is it possible to have the same uh, this time around? Um, I don't think that's too likely, um, but you know, you know, the thing with financial crises is that the last one's very, the, the next one's very different to the last one. Um, there is um, there is some concern now with with rising rates and sort of what the UK has shown us over the last two or three weeks since the mini budget that mm. things can go or get quite ugly quite quickly. And you know, UK is an advanced economy with a you know very respected central bank and sort of 
almost a, well used to be a paragon of stability. Um, some of these Central and Eastern European countries don't necessarily have that. Um, there's now you mentioned housing markets in the US. It's not just the US. There's you know Czech Republic is actually a prime candidate for that with its housing market. Um, mm. So that's something to watch. I think or I I'd like to think or like to hope that we've learned lessons um, when it comes to these you know massive rate hikes. Um, what the implications the the fallout for the economy can be. I think the macroprudential policies um, have been developed a lot more than than 40 years ago, but so I think, you know, like full-blown 80s, 90s style financial crisis, hopefully not as likely. But yeah, I mean, these are, these are exceptional times. Um, so it's, it's really hard to tell. It's really hard to say something's on the cards. Yeah. So Liam, I mean, just to, we're about to run out of time. I mean, how, how would you um, summarise? I mean, what's your, your outlook, your take? I mean, where, where, um, where are we headed? What's your prognosis? Are we doing the right things? <laughs> It's going to be a challenging winter for Eastern Europe and many Eurozone countries. I think the the base case is that there will be recessions. I think what's uncertain now is how long those recessions last and how deep they're going to be mm. and how that how that spills over into labor markets. I think uh, I think it's possible that we we manage through this winter without rationing. Obviously, a lot needs to go our way. We need a you know, we don't want a cold winter. We want um to be able to continue importing LNG from abroad. We need a few things to go our way. But provided that does happen, I think we could get through this winter with only you know, a small recession. Bigger questions there though on what happens next winter and some of those long-term implications of this energy crisis and how Europe adapts to this, this, new, this new world remain to, be, remain to be answered. Thomas, do you have anything to add? Maybe just on the sort of longer term implications, when I say longer term beyond this winter. I mean, yes, there's, you know, lots of infrastructure needs to be built, lots of investment needs to be made, both on, you know, substituting from Russian gas to maybe LNG and renewables. But, you know, the the price or the reward for doing this is, is great. And the, the incentives to it are also very high. And I like to think maybe, you know, during the COVID pandemic, how this is maybe not the best um metaphor of you know comparison but how quickly we managed to develop the vaccine when so much hinged on it i think mm. you know once the wheels start moving once the policymakers and firms realize how much hinges on doing this quickly and doing this properly we could actually be potentially surprised that mm. we could pull to pull through it um maybe better than we think well, yeah, I, um, to be optimistic, uh, th there's an opportunity here if we're going to borrow and spend all that money um, that to, to finish the, the green revolution, uh, which would give us, in theory, reliable, cheap energy forever, um, which would be a huge plus. But then again, I shouldn't be pessimistic, but you know, this whole discussion has assumed that we don't go to war with Russia and they don't drop a nuclear bomb on us. And so... You know, the trouble with Russia has become so unpredictable that, you know, we've both been saying shocks and surprises all the way down the road. And I don't actually think, or, or rather it would be prudent to assume that there's going to be some more of those going ahead. But on that slightly confused note, uh, <laughs> I would like to thank you both, uh, Liam and Thomas, for joining me. Uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, I think you really, we cleared up a lot and made it much clearer what the problems are, what the issues are going forward. And... Um, I'd like to thank everyone out there in internet land for, for listening. Um, we do this regularly. Um, that you can find a recording of this uh, uh, podcast on our YouTube channel. 
And um, if you're interested in knowing more about BNE, uh, we cover this patch daily, um, covering business, economics, finance, and politics. If you head over to, you can see on the screen now, intellinews.com slash welcome. There you can sign up for uh, the editor's picks, which is our free daily email, digest of our best stories from the last 24 hours. Um, you can also, if you're in the game and want to know uh, a lot more, then you can sign up for a two-week trial to our premium service pro and uh, the links for our YouTube channel there are there as well. So once again, until next time, thanks again to both my guests and uh, see you next time. Ciao.